Well, it sure is good to be with you again. My name is Wilson Van Hooser. I am the campus minister at Oklahoma State University with RUF, which is Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, my wife is up here at the front row as well, and uh, our son, you'll see him. He's, he's crazy. We love him. Uh, if you would, please keep your Bibles open. I tell my students this all the time. Keep your Bibles open because it does not matter what I say if it's not from the Word. That all, all the preacher is and all preaching is, it is God speaking through someone, through His Word, giving you His message for today. And so leave your Word open. And as, and as we look at this most holy text, this most incredible text, we'll be amazed at Jesus. Before I pray, let me read you a quote about Gethsemane. One author says, Gethsemane is not a field of study for our intellect. It is a sanctuary of our faith. And that what, what I want to show you today is this. That here at almost the climax of Jesus' life on earth, here is where his heart, here is where his love for you and I will be tested most. And if you want to see what Jesus' heart for you is really like, then you need to understand Gethsemane. Because you need to see that what he faced there was something none of us can totally imagine. And for him to keep going through, to keep going to the cross out of love for you and me, it's extravagant. So my goal is that you would leave here just with one simple thought that Jesus is amazing. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that this morning that we would hear the voice inside of the voice, the voice of Christ speaking to us, and that as we hear the word proclaimed that, that we might worship and be in awe and, and, and even work out our salvation in, in trembling and fear. And as we see you, Lord Jesus, May it be astonishing that we will not leave here the same as we see you as you are in this text. So help us, Holy Spirit. Help us as we look at this word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. From the book, Harry Potter. A chilly breeze that seemed to emanate from the heart of the forest lifted the hair at Harry's brow. He knew that they would not tell him to go, that it would have to be his decision. You'll stay with me, he asked his father. Until the very end, said James. They won't be able to see you, asked Harry. Sirius replied, we are part of you, invisible to everyone else. Harry looked at his mother and said, stay close to me. And then he set off. This was in this book series by J.K. Rowling. This was Harry Potter's big moment. This was the climax where he is going to walk into the den of his greatest enemy to lay down his life. Spoiler alert, it's been out for a long time. But here is a moment when he felt most pressure, when he felt that all of his life had been leading up to this moment. And what does he desire most? He desires the presence of his friends. Jesus' life, 
for 30 some odd years have been leading up to this moment. But unlike Harry Potter, Jesus must go down this road alone. Only he could do it. And what you're going to see here is what he has to face that is something so massive, so horrifying that even as we see the darkness of it, we actually see the love and the heart of Jesus. And so here's the question that I want to ask us, that I want us to keep us in mind, is this. Is Jesus really serious? Is he really serious about being gentle and lowly towards you? Let's see. Look at, look at verse 32. Let's look at the place. The place, the problem, and the prayer. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means literally the oil press. It could be the picture of when you press olives to make olive oil. And I think that's a, actually a good word picture because here in Gethsemane, Jesus' soul it will be pressed down by the thought of taking the wrath of God. You see, we truly see someone's heart when they are in the midst of a major trial, do we not? And we could say true love shows its true colors in trials. Does Jesus really love you and I? Well, here's a trial the trial that he's facing. He's also in what we know from other places that Gethsemane is in a garden. And if you've, if you, if you've read the Bible all the way through, when, whenever you see garden, your antenna should go up and you should be thinking something's happening. You see, earlier, way back in the beginning of time, not long after God had created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were in a garden and they were tempted to not go through with God's will, and they fail. But now here is the second Adam, the true Adam. And he too is being tempted to see if he will go through with God's will. And the question is, will he? There's also something else too, is that this particular place where Jesus is was actually a very familiar place where Jesus would often go and pray to his Father. It was a place of, of intimacy, a place of comfort. Often Jesus would withdraw from the people in the busyness of ministry so that he could be alone with his father and he would often come here. But instead of comfort, now it would be different. Now it would be a place of utter pain rather than the delight that he felt for all eternity past between the father and the son. What would he do in that most pressurized moment. Derek Thomas, who was one of my teachers at RTS, told us a story about a friend who's a very zealous evangelist, would love to tell people about Jesus, often to the point of being annoying. She had all these books and she would always be constantly giving out these books. As a matter of fact, Derek says that he has almost a hundred books just from, from her. But there came, there came a point towards the end of her college years when her dad, who was a staunch unbeliever, he said, look, if you give up all this Christianity stuff, I'll buy you a house. There was the moment for her. There was the pressure. And she caved under that pressure and gave up Christianity and has never turned back. What would Jesus do whenever the pressure is most real for him? 
That's the place. And we see at this place, the question is still this. Is Jesus really serious about loving you? Is he serious about being gentle and lowly towards you? We also see the problem. Look at verse 32 again. He's in Gethsemane and he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. Now it's really interesting because earlier when something like this happened, Jesus went up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And he left a lot of his disciples behind and he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he went on top of the mountain and he went through this transfiguration just event, and it was amazing, and he shone in glory like, like Moses' face coming down from Mount Sinai, and it was this incredible moment, but that's not happening here. Earlier they witnessed glory, now they witness utter pain. But I don't, I don't, I don't want you to miss this, though. Jesus wants people to be with him. We know that in our, in our most burdened moments, in our most painful moments, that we, we do long for our closest people just to be there with us. And I want you to see how, how human Jesus is. He's not, a super, he's not Superman. He's not a superhuman. And he wanted his three closest friends to be with him in his most painful trial. What's interesting, you see in The Lord of the Rings, you see the relationship between Samwise, Gamgee, and Frodo. And in one instance, the book says, Sam had stuck to his master talking about Frodo. He had stuck to his master all the way. And that was what he had chiefly come for. And he would stick with him still. His master would not go to Mordor alone. Sam would go with him. And surely Jesus wants some sort of comfort and presence to go with him as he goes to his own greater Mordor. But we know they will fail. And he will have to go alone. And we see as he's realizing this, look at verse 33, here's where it intensifies it says that he began to be greatly distressed and and troubled and y'all let me tell you the English language is stretching as hard as it can even even the very Greek language is stretching as hard as it can to encapsulate something of what's going on in Jesus's soul at this moment he is literally scared to death what does it mean that Jesus is greatly distressed? It means that he has mental anguish that is totally overwhelming. One person says it indicates a profound disarray expressed physically before a terrifying event. It is a shuddering horror. Have, have we ever seen Jesus like this? When you read the, the rest of the Gospels, have you ever seen Jesus like this? Some, something different must be going on. He has faced demons. He has faced a man who called himself legion because he had 2,000 demons in him. And you never saw Jesus afraid. When he is in the boat asleep on the cushion, almost drooling as it were, when this hurricane storm is on the ocean, and he looks at his disciples and says, why are you afraid? But why is it? Why is he afraid here? It says he's also troubled. 
It means that the burden of grief was life-threatening, as one person says. It also means bewilderment, anxiety, and near panic. One other person says it is the feeling we experience in the presence of of something utterly eerie. You see, what we see here is, is no picture of a Savior who cannot relate to you. You don't see this superhuman who's just walking through life and saying, this is a piece of cake. In order to fulfill righteousness, actually, Jesus, he must fight against the fear of death. And no one faced the fear of death more than Jesus in this moment. What's interesting is that, think about this, the Son of God is in such fear of death in this moment that he asks mere mortals to be with him. Why is he in this pain? That's the, that's the question we need to ask. You know, whenever you go through, if you're, if you're reading through the Bible or you go through the Gospels for your devotions or anything like that, you, you need to, when you get here, you need to ask this question, why is he in this pain? Because countless martyrs after him had gone to their own crosses and they sang hymns. There's a story of a young woman in Europe who was being put to death because she was a Christian and she was a young teenager. And as she was tied to this post with her hands behind her back and the rising tides would eventually rise up and she would drown, do you know what she was doing moments before her death? She was singing hymns. Why is it that Peter was willingly crucified upside down? Why is it that many people had been burned at the stake and they would sing and they would praise and they would pray, but Jesus, the author of their faith, is not doing that? He's terrified. What is he seeing? Well, as Scripture says, this is the hour of the power of darkness. Luke 22, verse 43 says that Jesus needed to be strengthened by an angel. (laughs) I remember one person says this, "When when I get to heaven... The first person who I obviously want to speak to is Jesus. Do you want to know the second person or creature who I want to speak to? I want to speak to that angel who ministered to Jesus in that moment. Here's what one person says. In Gethsemane, Jesus knew that he was face to face with the unconditionally holy. That absolutely overwhelming might that condones nothing cannot look upon any impurity and cannot be diverted from its purpose. What would it do to him? What's interesting here is that Gethsemane is only the appetizer, if we can put it that way. It's not yet the main course. That's what one person says. This should remind us that for all the darkness of Gethsemane, it is not yet the darkness. What Jesus is seeing here is he is seeing your eternal hell. He is face to face with it. He knows he must take it. And that's what we say what happens on the cross. Jesus takes your hell so that he can give you his heaven. But he must take it. He must face the omnipotent wrath of God Almighty 
He is the one who is the second Adam. He does not go for himself. He goes with all of his people's sins throughout all the ages. And they are placed upon him like this massive burden. And he bears it on his back just like he bears the whip markings on his back. I want you to think about this. Think of your most regretful sin in your past. Think of the shame that, that comes up when you think about that sin and when you feel that sin. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to multiply that times all your sins that if you could see them clearly as they could be seen, all the pain and the shame from all those sins of your past, your present, and your future. And now imagine all the shames and the sins of all the people Jesus died for. Now imagine the perfect sight and judgment of the Holy One as He sees sin as it is, as its impurity, as its uncleanness. And He sees it and it is strange to Him. And now think about as he, what it would mean for him to take the weight of it upon himself. And as he turns his face towards his infinitely holy father who has loved him from all eternity. But now think about how fearful it would be that as Jesus faces his father, his father is beginning to turn his back on him. But simultaneously, what he's also doing is the Father is turning towards him in only and all of his wrath. Think about what that inner turmoil, that burden would be for Jesus. So much to the point where Luke says that he was sweating blood. Here's what Martin Luther says. As the representative who has taken all the sins of his people upon him, Luther says that Jesus became the greatest sinner that ever there was. He goes on to say, no one feared death as much as this man in this moment. Look at verse 34. Jesus tells them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So much sorrow would Jesus have that we could say that he's fighting to stay alive. And he tells them something here. He says, remain here and watch. And now it's really interesting because just in Mark chapter 13, he was constantly telling his disciples that you must watch for God's coming. You must watch for the kingdom to come. You must watch for the, the second coming of the Messiah. And he tells him here, remain, remain here and, and watch. Be watchful that you might not be led into temptation. But he's also telling them something else too. He wants to remind them of something. Because back in Exodus 12 verse 42, the night of the Passover is described in this way. It says, it was a night of watching by Yahweh. That Yahweh watched over his people so that he might preserve them, so that he might save them. And now every Passover, every feast of the Passover from then on, they were to remember it by it being a night of watching. Families would keep the Passover by staying up late and remembering the fact that God was watchful over them when he passed over them in Egypt. And this night, with Jesus... There is a yoke much heavier. 
There's a wrath much greater in a lamb that is only one lamb, not many lambs. And it is a lamb of much more worth. And I think we have to, we have to see this. Jesus sees that all the slaughterings of those lambs at Passover for thousands of years have all been leading up to him. And when John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, here is the dawning realization of the fullness of that. But there would be no blood over Jesus' door. It would come down upon him. Isaiah 53 verse 7 Surely Jesus, as he studied this his whole life, is beginning to see it so clearly when it says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Here's a question. Why would he keep going? We're, we're, we're so averse to pain, especially today. We're, we're we, we are so quick to, to, to take Advil and Tylenol or whatever it is to dull the pain. And when we're anxious, we're, we're, we're so quick to say, as long as I can just get back to feeling good. I mean, I'm getting over Guillain-Barre right now, and, I, and I'm constantly thinking, like, how can I just get back to feeling better? Why, why would Jesus keep pressing into this pain? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. As Hebrews says, because of the joy that was set before him. Let me put it this way, if I can, reverently. Jesus is not like a squirrel that just mindlessly runs in traffic. Jesus sees it all, and with all his rational thought, he goes into it purposely. The pain which he feels is the pain which sin deserves. You know, we're often faced with this spiritual warfare where the dark Lord, Satan himself, tells us, he says, God is holy, God hates sin, you are a sinner, therefore God hates you. He often will make us think this, do you really think the Holy One would draw near to you with all your past mistakes? Do you really think that the One who knows all things would forget what you have done? Do you really think that the Holy One who demands you to be holy as He is holy will somehow let you off the hook? That is why we must have someone go for us. How much does Samwise Gamgee love Frodo? You've seen the movies, you've read the books, and you see that oftentimes Frodo is harsh and cruel and mean towards Sam, but what does he do? He resiliently, with dogged determination, presses into him. Is Jesus really serious about loving you and I with all of our sin? Because here's the moment for him where he, as your representative, would say, am I willing to take upon me what they deserve? Does he really love you? He continues, look at verse 35. And going a little further, he fell. It doesn't say that he came up and 
gently, cool, calm, and under composure, knelt down. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor in, in Germany in 1945, uh, he was arrested and sent to a concentration camp, and when they executed him, one of the guards says that right before the point of him being executed, that he gently knelt to the ground and prayed. And he looked so confident. That is not the picture you have here with Jesus. Jesus fell to the ground almost as if when you get buried in, the, in squats in the gym. And the piling of the wrath of God upon him. And when he gets a little further than his three disciples, he fell to the ground. And what did he do? Well, he wrestled with God. Luther says the full power of the law was set upon Christ so that he felt such anguish as no one on earth had ever felt. Look at it, it keeps going. He says he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. What, 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 is, what does he mean by the hour? Often in Jesus' life, he, he, remember he told his mother at the wedding at Cana where he would turn water into wine, but he often told her, my hour has not yet come. He would often say that, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, but now all of a sudden, here it is. He was born of the virgin, but born to die. The hour was there. And then look at verse 36, he prays, he says, Abba, Father. I want you to see this as well. This is the last time Jesus is going to say, Abba, Father. He won't say it on the cross. On the cross, rather, what he's going to say, instead of saying, Abba, Father, he's going to repeat Psalm 22, which says in, in um, oh, excuse me, in Aramaic, it says, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no Abba, Father. It is a strange distancing, and it is the wrath of God upon him. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. The cup of wrath is, is what the Old Testament talked about, how the sins of the people would almost, almost in a way be, be, God's wrath would be stored up in this cup, and it says that they would have to drink down God's wrath for their sins. And here is that cup. You see, here's what one person says, and I think it's Robert Frost who had this poem of the path less traveled. If you're a poet, correct me afterward. This is not the path less traveled. This is the path no one traveled. No one has ever gone down this road before. No one has ever taken the cup. You see, and in a way, we actually need to think about this. Jesus actually, he must be tempted to shrink from the cup. If he is going to fulfill all righteousness, he can't look at that cup and say, yeah, it's a piece of cake. He must so love the fellowship of the Father that when he sees that cup, knowing that he would take the wrath of God upon himself, he must feel the weight of that temptation. He must feel the horror of what it would be like to be separated from the Father of love. Yet, Jesus had also made a covenant with his Father before time began. And he made a covenant, he made a promise saying, I will save our people. 
And I want you to imagine this as he prays. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And I do think we should think this. The whole cosmos stands still. The music stops. There is an utter silence. Here is the moment where all the governments of the world, God in his sovereign power has led them so that Jesus would get to this moment. Here is where all of his life would lead up to this moment. All the plannings of God from eternity past would be here at this moment. And he is praying, if it were possible, remove this cup from me. And imagine the silence as all the devil and his, and his demons are leaning in to tempt Jesus most right here to not go to the cross. And imagine the holy angels looking in amazement at this moment, thinking, what will happen? Is he really serious about loving you and I? Here's what one author says. Here Satan shows him not all the kingdoms of the world as, as in a previous temptation, But here he shows him the full cost of his love. And here he presses home these questions. Listen to this. Is it worth it? Listen to the second question where the author says, Are they worth it? Are you worth it? With all of your sin, with all of your shame, does he really love us? Does he really have a heart for the worst of sinners? Not people who just need a little bit of cleanup. Jesus would not go through this moment if you just needed a little bit of a tune-up. That that your sins are, as we talked about two weeks ago, they're manageable. No, are are you really like that woman who is so sinful, who is so unclean, that you need someone to take the wrath of God because you cannot take it? You need someone to take your eternal hell upon themselves. Are you worth it? That's the question. Yet, that one word that comes next, yet, could you imagine, could you imagine the confidence and almost maybe even the war cry of the holy angels as he has this dogged determination and says, though I am facing all this, yet, we're going. And it's only going to be him. He, the Lamb of God, is saying, this is the moment that my life has led to. The whole history of the world hangs on this moment. This is amazing. Let me just ask you some questions on the side. It's this. Do you think that Jesus wants you to go through the same terrors of conscience if he has already faced them for you? Or maybe, let's put it this way as well, thinking about how we have not only peace with God, but we have peace with others. Do you think Jesus really wants us to make others continually feel bad about their sins for so long so that they can feel so bad for so long that we can make sure that their feeling bad makes them right if Jesus went through this for them? That's one of Satan's big tactics. Satan wants us to think that somehow the cup, 
that Jesus had to take for us, that somehow that cup is, it still has a little bit of that bitter wine in there. But Jesus drank that cup to the dregs so that when he could flip it over, not a drop came out. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Here's where Adam, here's where all of Israel, here's where all of humanity never traveled. The countless people, the countless times in our lives when we have been tempted in the moment and we thought God's will is too, too tough and we give in to this sin, we give in to that sin, Jesus never gave in. And here at the height of all of his temptations, he says, I will go and I will press into this so that I might save my people. We don't have time to get into it, but you see that, you know, three times he went through this. You know, he would come back and he would find his disciples and they'd be sleeping and he would go back and pray and he would go through the same things again. He wrestled with this three times and what did he do all three times? He was determined. Guys, how much does Jesus Christ love you despite all of your sins? So much so that three times he says, I am going, and there is no one who will hinder this plan. Is Jesus really serious about loving sinners like you and me? Yeah. He's serious. Do you think that Jesus would somehow go through all this and then be harsh and cruel and resentful towards you? That he would look at you and say, Caroline, you've messed up for the fourth time over the same sin. Get your act together. Sam, you have been struggling with this one sin for, for five years now, and I can't believe you still struggle with this. Do you not see what I've done? Do you think he would, think he would do that? After he's taken this, he leans into you with his love and his forgiveness and his mercy. And though you might be tempted to think otherwise, you might be tempted to beat yourself up time and time and time again, you must stop doing that. And with all of your sins, you must come to this Jesus and say, you are enough. Unlike Harry Potter, Jesus was utterly alone. No one accompanied him to the altar in the heavenly holy of holies. No one else would be the Lamb of God slain for the world. No one else would sit under the microscope of God's infinite wrath. Jesus went alone, but that didn't mean that he alone would be affected by what happened. Because Jesus goes as your representative. He presses in, travels deeper and deeper into the darkness of God's Passover wrath. And the only answer to that is because of his love for you and I. Is there a greater Savior than this? There is no one like this. And that leaves you with, with and I don't care what you faced, it leaves you with one simple thing, and it's this. Come to Jesus. Don't just believe in God. Believe God. 
Take him at his word. Trust in his grace and mercy. Press into Jesus Christ. Stop trying to clean yourself up or get your act together and then come to Jesus. Come to him. He will save you. And he will love you. Let me pray. Our Father, we ask, oh, and so rich and wonderful of a text, that, oh, we might hear that voice inside the voice and that it would linger even as we leave this building, and that we might behold the wondrous works of our God. And we might be astounded that even as we take the supper, oh, that we might know that we can come to the supper in joy because our Lord went as the Passover lamb in utter pain and horror. What a Savior. What a God. We ask all this in his name. Amen.